0: Hi, everybody. This is Jimmy DeYoung. Welcome to Prophecy Today. So glad to have you along. We've got a very important program. We're going to be looking at Benghazi Gate and also the operation, the military operation by the Israeli Defense Force there in the Gaza Strip. So keep the dial set right where it is. By the way, in the fourth segment, at the top of the hour, I'm going to be talking with Rabbi Yoel Karin about the 25th anniversary of of the Temple Institute. They're the people preparing to build that next temple in Jerusalem. This is a very important program. Keep the dial set right where it is. You're listening to Prophecy Today. Now let's get right underway with our broadcast partners. So much to talk about today. We go immediately to the Washington, D.C. area. Ken Timmerman, He covers geopolitical activities around the world for us, and Ken, on Friday morning, there was a hearing, a closed hearing on Capitol Hill, and General David Petraeus was in attendance early in the morning. Representative King from the New York City area, came out, made some brief statements. Things are developing so quickly, I don't know where we could start and and be up to date. But uh, it does not seem like all the questions were asked. Uh, David Petraeus said the talking points they sent over to the White House that were used by Ambassador Rice when she went on those talk show programs that Sunday uh, did contain information that this was not a spontaneous happening, that al-Qaeda was involved. Uh, But uh, that then leaves the question, does it not? What about David Petraeus' own testimony early on? He said it was a spontaneous happening.
1: Well, that's right, and and I think that's just one of many questions that uh, remain to be answered. Uh, He testified to Congress three days after the September 11th attack and uh, essentially said it was a, quote, flash mob, Uh, so a spontaneous uh, type of demonstration. Uh, Look, I, I... it's going to take some time before this information does get out uh, these were closed-door hearings with uh, david petraeus uh... my guess is that he is going to want to make a full breast of what cia knew at the time and don't forget they gave an extraordinary background briefing to reporters uh... about ten days ago uh... that uh, essentially contradicted everything that the white house had been saying and specifically uh, the White House contention that Susan Rice, who is now in line to become the Secretary of State nominee, from what we hear, that Susan Rice uh, was uh, never told uh, about the al-Qaeda involvement before she made those uh, infamous comments on these Sunday talk shows.
0: Well, let me ask you this thing, Ken. Is this a cover-up of the proportions of a Watergate cover-up?
1: Well, I think it's worse than Watergate because nobody died during Watergate. In this case, you have four Americans who are dead, including a U.S. ambassador and two uh, former U.S. Navy SEALs, a CIA operative as well. Um, and, and from what we are hearing, there is no excuse for those deaths. Uh, there was live coverage from a Predator drone overhead that was apparently fed into the White House Situation Room as the attacks were going on, and and there are just a huge number of questions that have never been answered. We don't know what Barack Obama knew the, and when he knew it, and who gave the order not to go rescue uh, the U.S. personnel in Benghazi. So there's a lot of unanswered questions. I expect we'll hear some of it in the coming weeks. But uh, you know what this administration is trying to do is to deflect attention from the real scandal, which is Benghazi Gate and to focus people on the sex lives of uh, American generals. And I think that's just
0: pathetic. Yes, it it certainly is. Well, let's change the focus now to the Middle East. Uh, The Israeli Defense Force involved in an operation to go in and get rid of terrorism in the Gaza Strip. Meanwhile, you have uh, countries in the area, Egypt, Jordan, and Turkey, and also Russia, condemning what the Israeli Defense Force is doing. Meanwhile, ironically, the United States jumps to the support of Israel, giving Prime Minister Netanyahu a green light. Uh, this is going to have ramifications not only for the Israelis and the Palestinians, but across the region, will it not?
1: Well, it depends uh, on uh, what happens in the coming days. Um, we're, we're hearing uh, on Friday, for example, that the uh, Israeli defense forces have moved uh, troops and tanks to the border with Gaza, that there's a potential call-up of 30,000 reservists. Uh, if uh, the government, of Prime Minister Netanyahu, uh, orders a major ground incursion into Gaza to take care of the terrorist cells that have been launching these rockets into Israeli communities, um, that will be a, a, a big operation. It will have an impact. The European Union has already been... Uh, far less supportive of, of the Israelis than um, uh, the United States has been. Uh, and I think you'll see more uh, calls from some of the outlying countries in the European Union. Uh, not, the, not Germany, not, not Britain, but uh, France could back off a bit. Italy could back off and um, uh, some others. Uh, and so I'm a little bit concerned about uh, where this could lead. Uh, this said, be careful about um, uh, taking the U.S. acquiescence to Israeli retaliation for full support there was a frankly a very weak uh, statement out of the State Department uh, about Israel's right to self-defense but we've not gotten a uh, clear readout as far as I'm aware from the White House on the call that was made between uh, President Obama and Benjamin Netanyahu Uh, the two uh, leaders famously detest each other and Obama has never uh, offered full-throated support for Israel or its right to self-defense. And uh, he has, on the contrary, been very supportive of the Muslim Brotherhood and called on Israel to back off of its attack. So um, we could see some you know, weakening of that U.S. support uh, in the weeks to come, depending on what happens on the ground.
0: It's an ongoing story. We'll stay on top of it best we possibly can. Uh, in that same region of the world, though, Iran is still a threat. They have not gone away. They're continually... In the process of developing a nuclear weapon of mass destruction, and now there's an analyst here in the United States, uh, David Gergen, who's making some statements. Over 50 percent chance that uh, there will be an Iranian conflict in the coming year. You think that number is correct? Do you think there will be such a conflict?
1: Well, I think that's a that's a very reasonable calculation. Uh, I would I would say probably higher than that. Uh, myself, but David Gergen, uh, remember, is is a he's a journalist by trade, but he's also worked in the White House. He was an advisor to President Clinton. He's also worked in Republican administrations in the past, so he understands the chemistry that goes on in the White House. Uh, and notice in the statements that he made as well, there was as much accusation of Israel for its position and it's uh, the, the, the position of Prime Minister Netanyahu in drawing a red line on Iran, as there was a recognition that the United States could be sucked into a war. I, w- I found that uh, particularly uh, surprising on Gergen's uh, part. He was saying that Israel should be faulted for drawing red lines, uh, and that the United States was willing to uh, set its own red line at the point where Iran would actually acquire a nuclear weapon, whereas the Israelis have been saying Uh, their red line is when Iran acquires the capability for nuclear weapons. I think that's a very dangerous uh, discrepancy between those two positions. Uh, It is uh, enough to drive a nuclear weapon through. And uh, if the United States holds to that definition of the red line, um, we could have a nuclear-armed Iran uh, with U.S. acquiescence, and the only force standing up against it would be the state of Israel.
0: You know, I'm going to have a Middle East news update with uh, David Dolan in just a few moments, but it looks like I'm focusing much on the Middle East as far as you're concerned, Ken. Uh, You've been throughout all the Islamic world. As a journalist, as an author, you know that part of the world fairly well. Uh, Talk to me about Egypt's decision under President Morsi, a member of the Muslim Brotherhood, who has said their constitution is going to be based on Islam. That takes them right to the edge of being an Islamic republic, does it not?
1: Well, it does, and it puts them in line with countries such as the Islamic Republic of Iran, the Islamic Republic of Pakistan, uh, and the, the Saudi uh, monarchy, all of which uh, draw the uh, source of law or cite that the source of law in their countries is Islamic Sharia law. It's not surprising that a Muslim Brotherhood government would do this. Um, Remember, too, that even in Iraq, uh, after Saddam Hussein, where the United States played a uh, guiding role in helping the new Iraqi government to draft its constitution, uh, the U.S. advisors who were in Iraq helping them, uh, the legal advisors helping them draft that constitution, also pushed to include uh, or to cite Islam as the, uh, source of law for the new iraq so this is not surprising it is it bodes uh, not very well for the minorities inside egypt even though uh... from what we've seen so far uh... the constitution the egyptian constitution will also include uh... a tolerance for uh... jewish and christian citizens of egypt but only insofar as their religious and family practices are concerned not as Uh, relates to their relationship to the state. And I think that's a very important distinction. So Jews and Christians will have to be subjected to Islamic Sharia law insofar as the relationship to the state and state organs, uh, state education, and and other things uh, are concerned. Uh, That is going to be a problem, I think, in the
0: future. Yes, and it is a very interesting distinction between the two. Well, uh, one minute, if you will, Ken, talk to me about China's new leadership.
1: Well, um, the, 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 I think what's, what's most uh, surprising about this is that the Chinese now, for the second time in a row, have had a peaceful handoff of power without uh, too many people uh, thrown in jail before the new leadership was chosen. I mean, they, they have thrown some folks in jail and, on corruption charges, and, and uh, this former, former uh, provincial leader both. His wife is now in jail, from what I understand, for on allegations of having murdered a British diplomat. Uh, that's a choice. Uh, but nevertheless, the Chinese seem to be on the road to uh, a new uh, leadership focused on economic development. That's their real concern now. How, do, how are they going to deal with the potential massive unemployment of people in the provinces in China? That's the big question, I think, in the future.
0: Well, it's not only a question for them, a question for us here in the United States as well. Ken Timmerman, he covers geopolitical activities for us, and so informative is he. I'm always thrilled when we can catch him and let you eavesdrop on our conversation. Ken, thank you so much. We'll talk again real soon. Thank you, Jimmy. It's my pleasure. Thank you very much, Ken. We're going to take a break. And when we come back, I'm going to give you a Middle East news update. It's a focus on the Gaza Strip and what's going on there. That's all ahead right here on Prophecy Today.
2: Dr. Jimmy DeYoung's latest book, Revelation, A Chronology, takes a walk through the prophetic book of Revelation in the order that the events will take place, chronologically, sharing insights into its true meaning and doing so in an easy to understand and practical way. If you have difficulty understanding the book of Revelation, get your copy of Revelation, A Chronology, and let Dr. Jimmy Young aid you in your understanding of this profound End Times Prophecy book that God has preserved in His Scriptures for Christians in the last days. To order your copy of Jimmy Young's Revelation, A Chronology, call us toll-free at 877-674-3298 or visit our website at prophecytoday.com.
0: Welcome back to Prophecy Today. This is going to be a very important segment because we're going to be talking with David Dolan. He's given us our Middle East News update, the situation in Israel, especially focused on the Gaza Strip deteriorating moment by moment. We'll not necessarily talk about what's happening right this moment as we're on the air talking to you, but instead an overall big picture of what is happening. Uh, David, it is very, very unbelievable what's happening in that part of the world. Uh, Talk to me about this military operation by the Israeli Defense Force into the Gaza Strip. Why is it taking place?
3: Well, Jimmy, you know, I've uh, said to you many times that it isn't just up to Israel to decide when to take on Iran, and basically this is Iran initiating a war against Israel via its proxy. Now, uh, we've talked a lot about its uh, proxies. Its main one is Hezbollah in Lebanon, but second to that has become the Hamas movement in the Gaza Strip. And this group, uh, you know, I wrote about them in the early 90s in my first book and predicted they would become a major force in the war against Israel, the Islamic war to destroy Israel. And that's what's taken place. Uh, They ousted the uh, PLO, the Fatah movement that controls Judea and Samaria, the West Bank, most of it, Uh, from the Gaza Strip in 2007. They took over And they have, as Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu and others warned, when Ariel Sharon in 2005 was pulling Israeli military forces and, of course, Israeli civilians, 8,000 of them, from their homes in the Gaza Strip, he predicted that this movement would become uh, the major force in the Gaza Strip. They would take it over, and he called it a Hamas stand. They would turn this into a Hamas-ruled Uh, Iranian-protected and aided and funded zone that would continue to war against the Jewish state. And as you know, that is exactly what's happened with thousands of rockets. We're talking about thousands of rockets being fired from there into Ashkelon, the city nearby that I often visit because I have friends that have a home there, Uh, Ashdod, 'er Beersheba, other southern cities, that they would take it over and use that as a base to attack Israel. Well, of course, this week, they turned it into a base that attacked Tel Aviv and Jerusalem, rockets reaching that far. Not Hamas rockets, but Iranian Fajr rockets produced uh, and uh, sent to uh, Hamas by Iran. So um, the Israeli government, facing an election in two months' time, said we cannot uh, deal with this, we cannot stand for this to continue, and so we have this uh, war Uh, Again, not initiated by Israel. Israel has nothing against Iran, but Iran has done it. And uh, so we're now in this uh, escalating conflict that, again, uh, it isn't clear from CNN, it isn't clear from the news uh, media here in the States, but that Iran has initiated through its proxies, and uh, therefore we have this escalating conflict.
0: Talk to me about Egypt's involvement in this whole operation that's unfolding. Egypt has sent their prime minister into the Gaza Strip. But again, I go back to what you said about 25 years ago. You knew exactly how Hamas was going to play out. I don't think you're a prophet nor the son of a prophet, but because of your experience in the Middle East, you could recognize, and Hamas comes out of the Muslim Brotherhood. Sheikh Yusin was a, a leading member of the Muslim Brotherhood. Egypt's going to get involved. Could this break into a conflict between Israel and Egypt as well?
3: Well, it, it could, but Jimmy, I really don't expect that it will. And the reason is that Egypt is a divided country. We did have this ouster of uh, Hosni Mubarak, we had the popular uprisings there in the country, but we have to remember those were led by uh, Coptic Christians initially. That was a movement uh, against Mubarak. He was, uh, you know, an autocrat. I wouldn't call him a dictator, but it it was an autocratic rule, and he suppressed the Muslim Brotherhood. And the uh, Coptic Christians and others supported that, but now the Muslim Brothers have taken over the country, but they have not, Jimmy, they have not taken over the Egyptian military. The military there is still very dependent on U.S. American aid, uh, over a billion dollars that we send to the country every year. It all goes to the military. They understand that. They know that their continuing resilience, their existence, their strength depends on the United States. And certainly. Uh, the Obama administration, the US government, the Congress, the Senate does not want to see our longtime closest Middle East ally Egypt in terms of the Arabs, of course Israel's our overall ally, but in terms of the Arab world, Egypt, they don't want to see it go to war against Israel, break that treaty, and they know they will lose all of that funds, all of that funding if they uh, allow the Morsi government to drag them into that. So I think Jimmy, if we see uh, and we do see the, uh, the Muslim Brotherhood government in Egypt uh, railing against Israel now, as you said, the Prime Minister going to the Gaza Strip yesterday, making very strong pro-Hamas statements, very strong anti-Israel statements. If we see them try to attempt to move that into the military sphere, I think we're going to see an internal conflict in Egypt like we're seeing in Syria. So um, no. I, I don't expect that Morsi can just uh, order his military to take on Israel, and they're going to say, oh, okay, we have nothing else to do. <laughs> this is a relatively weak force. Well, they know that's not true. They know that Israel has one of the strongest militaries in the world. I saw a report yesterday saying it's one of the top ten militaries in the world. That's certainly the case. And they know they would get beat up badly if they took on Israel. So I think that the, the uh, military leaders in Egypt will say to the government, no, we're not going to do this, even if you want us to. So I think the Israelis are gambling on that, but of course it is a risk. But more, more, more likely, Jimmy, than Egypt getting involved is Hezbollah under Iranian orders joining this fight, uh, Iran itself joining it. So it does have the potential certainly to become a regional major war, But I don't think, at least at this point, that that will involve the Egyptian military.
0: Because of your experience, David, how long do you think the Israeli Defense Force military operation in the Gaza Strip is going to last?
3: Well, again, it will depend on uh, whether anyone else gets involved. Uh, Hezbollah is the main key. Uh, They are, of course, like Hamas, also an Iranian proxy force. But they are Iran's main proxy force in the region. Hamas is, of course, a Sunni Muslim force, not a Shiite force, whereas Hezbollah is a Shiite force, just as Iran is a Shiite country. So if they uh, join this, then we're going to have a major regional war that could last for some time. Uh, If it just remains Hamas in the Gaza Strip, which, of course, is what Israel is hoping it will, then I think we may see a couple more weeks of conflict, uh, the Israelis, uh, I believe the Netanyahu government is basically taking on Hamas now because of course they 've been firing rockets we 've had over a thousand rockets fired into Israel this year. You and I have been talking about it, Jimmy, but nobody else has been paying attention it 's suddenly in the news, and it 's like oh here 's Israel again uh, initiating uh, aggression, as we heard from uh, several <laughs> Palestinian spokesmen yesterday they 're aggressing. Against the Palestinians. No, that's not the case at all. They have been firing rockets into Israeli cities and towns. Israeli civilians have been running to bomb shelters all year in Beersheba, in Ashdod, in Ashkelon. And now, of course, those rockets uh, with Iranian supply are hitting Tel Aviv and Jerusalem, or at least capable of doing, and they did hit the outskirts of both cities on Friday. So um, the Israelis are going to take this in to the end. They're gonna to try to eliminate that rocket force as much as they can and they know that this may, Jimmy, be uh taking out one of their potential enemies in a future showdown with Iran. And I think Iran ordered this to test Israeli defenses to see how well they could take out these rockets, thinking that the Israelis would not step it up to a full war. But the Israeli government again facing elections in two months time and again we have jerusalem being hit okay that's like washington being hit uh... we have tel aviv being hit that's like new york being hit so just imagine that rockets were coming from the canadian border thank god that's not going to happen but let's hope but uh... they're hitting now washington dc and new york as well as maine and new hampshire and vermont which they've been hitting for months That's essentially what's been going on in israel and the israeli government like any american government cannot just sit and say, oh, well, oh, we'll just uh, ignore this. No, they're taking it on. They're going to take it all the way, I think, and make sure that they clean out that rocket capability entirely. And that probably does mean a ground offensive, and that will mean some weeks' worth of conflict, and the world will gritch about it, but it will at least take out that element if we're going to have a full-scale war with Iran that Hezbollah gets into it will at least mean one less front attacking Israel.
0: David Dolan with our Middle East News Update. Late breaking news and information you needed to know. Uh, David, thank you so very much. We'll stay in touch as the week unfolds. We'll stay on top of this with you. Thank you, my good friend, for this report.
3: You're welcome. God bless.
0: We're going to take a break, and when we come back, I'll be talking with Itamar Marcus. He heads up Palestinian Media Watch. He's been covering the 25th anniversary of the Palestinian Declaration of Independence by Yasser Arafat back in 1988. This all plays into what we've been talking about with David. That's all ahead right here on Prophecy Today. Welcome back to Prophecy. Today we go into our second half hour. I want to invite you to keep the dial set right where it is. In just a few moments, we'll be talking with Joel Karen. Rabbi Karen is going to talk about the 25th anniversary of the Temple Institute those Jewish people in Jerusalem doing everything to prepare to rebuild the next temple. Well, that conversation upcoming, but right now we have a conversation with Itamar Marcus. He heads up Palestinian Media Watch. It's a team there in Jerusalem monitoring the Palestinian media, both the electronic and the print media. Normally, we would get a hold of Itamar in Israel, but he's still in the United States. Last time we talked, he was on a trip traveling across America and speaking on university campuses. Itamar, how was that tour going?
4: Uh, It's going very well. People are happy to be informed. They were upset that they were misinformed or lack of information. When you show people videos from Palestinian television, how children are being educated to hate and uh, hate Jews, hate Christians, uh, um, and, and you see Palestinian children being taught things like Islamic supremacy. People get horrified, and they're they're interested in, in uh, working to 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 change the education in the Palestinian society.
0: Well, that is a great opportunity for you to be able to tell the truth to these students in universities. I was uh, recently in Auburn, Alabama, and at the location, the church where I spoke. A number of students were there, and they were so excited to understand what the Bible talks about when you look at the ancient Jewish prophets as it relates to the future. And, of course, that's a part, basically, of what you're doing because there's so much prophecy dealing with the situation today that if you look at it, you have to recognize the days in which we're living. were described by the ancient Jewish prophets. I want to talk to you about a report that you have recently released. It's talking about the Palestinian people who make the statement, there's no trace of Jewish history in what they call their land. Now, what's that all about?
4: Um, <clears throat> one of the backbones of Palestinian ideology is to Erase Israeli history and replace it with a fictitious Palestinian history. And, uh, for example, in this particular item where they talk about uh, the Jews searching for for remnants of the temple and that the temple only exists in their minds. It's it's part of this uh, brainwashing of their people to feel that they have a right to fight Israel because we are foreigners And we have no connection to the land. So it seems like it's just theoretically talking about the past, but it's actually much worse because it's used as motivation for violence and hatred and terror because Israel is presented as a usurper, as a a foreigner who stole a country that we have no connection to.
0: When these reports come out, I mean, it seems like these people are blatantly lying to the world. In fact, there is so much tangible evidence that there have been Jews living in that land for, for 4,000 years, basically. Uh, but uh, when you look at uh, recent history... Even over the last 100 years, out of 108 nations of the world, Jews have come into the land, and uh, they've come back to the land of their forefathers. Ezekiel wrote about it in the 36th chapter of the book of Ezekiel. He said they'll come into the land that he has promised to give the Jewish people, and it's going to be a far better land than it was for their forefathers. That seems to be the case with the way Israel is prospering in that piece of real estate they have today.
4: The... um, the the Palestinian Authority has built an entire uh, history, an entire world that never existed. They talk about an ancient Palestinian nation as if one existed. Sometimes they'll say it was a 5,000-year nation, sometimes a 3,000-year nation. The point is the reality and the the archaeological facts on the ground that you refer to are are no concern of them. In fact, they say regularly things like, uh, the archaeological finds have only been claimed by the Israeli archaeologists, which of course is not true. So it's, they don't even attempt to justify or corroborate. Uh, and in fact, they're even denying their own Quran because the Quran talks about the children of Israel having a temple and then having a second temple and Allah being angry at them. So they're even denying the Quran when they say that there was no temple.
0: You know, does this play into the plan of Yasser Arafat when in 1988 he declared an independence for the Palestinian people, their declaration of independence, and then named himself president? Was this part of their whole propaganda approach to trying to convince the world that uh, the Jewish people are wrong, they are right?
4: Yes, I I think it's... um, I don't know how much he believes he can convince the rest of the world but he wants to convince the Arab world, he wants to convince the Palestinian population that they actually have roots. Of course, the Palestinian, what's called the Palestinian people, have have no roots in the land as a Palestinian people. There were individual Arabs living in the land, most of whom have connections to either Syria or or Egypt. And this was said, by the way, recently by a Hamas leader on television who was complaining that, that the Palestinians aren't getting enough help from the other countries. And then he said, well, of course... You should be helping us. After all, aren't we Egyptians and aren't we Saudi Arabians, really, in our origin? So uh, there really was no such thing historically as a Palestinian Arab people. Uh, they're mostly the overall majority of recent immigrants uh, and descendants of recent immigrants who came to the land during the 20th century when, uh, when the Zionist movement started developing the land. This has historically been documented very, very clearly by now. So because they are outsiders, it's important for them to erase Israel's history and to claim to be the authentic people, so that their own people will feel that they have roots in a land that they basically are foreign to.
0: And the Palestinian people over the years have uh, claimed that they had a state that the uh, Jewish people took from them 1948 when they established an independent Jewish state. But uh, when you look back through history, do we have any record? If you're talking about no Palestinian people, what about a Palestinian state? There was never a Palestinian state, was there? Of
4: course, no Palestinian state, no Palestinian king, no Palestinian leadership. It was British Palestine. It was Palestine was the geographic area, and in fact it was Jews who primarily identified as Palestinians during that whole period, more than the local Arab population who identified with their clan or with their uh, origins from as I say, from either Syria or from Egypt, but they did not identify as Palestinians. You have, for example, the Palestine Post, was a Jewish newspapers today, the Jerusalem Post. You had the Palestine Potash Organization, and you had all these Palestine organizations, and they were all jewish zionist organizations because they were the ones who identified as Palestinian.
0: but the only real problem is these palestinians are not going to go away the hamas the fatah organizations the other members of the palestinian liberation organization a conglomerate of all palestinian groups they're not going to go away are they they're going to continue their armed struggle until they can Uh, take out what they believe a state that should not be there, the Jewish state of Israel, should be removed and replaced by Palestine.
4: Yes, and that's the great tragedy, is that uh, they are planting the seeds for a very, very long conflict. They have no problem fighting us for many years, and uh, that's the very pessimistic note of all this.
0: Itamar Marcus, he heads up an organization, Palestinian Media Watch, Palwatch, P-A-L-W-A-T-C-H. Palwatch.org is their website address. You can go there and you can uh, sign up for the newsletter that Itamar sends out to alert you of what the Palestinian media is really saying. Well, I'm sure that you're going to have some very successful meetings before you have to leave and go back to Israel, so we wish you God's speed as you travel. Thanks once again, and we'll talk again real soon.
4: You're very welcome, and have a great day. Bye.
0: Very interesting comments from Itamar Marcus, head of Palestinian Media Watch, as the Palestinian people celebrate the 24th anniversary of Yasser Arafat declaring independence for the Palestinian people. Now we go to Colonel Bob McGinnis. Bob McGinnis on a cell phone. You may hear some noise in the background. But we wanted to talk to Bob about the situation developing as it relates to uh, the Benghazi attack on our consulate there. But in addition to that, the resignation of David Petraeus from CIA. Not necessarily getting into the nitty-gritty details about the reason Petraeus uh, resigned from the CIA, about what effect that will have on America. If I remember correctly, Bob, did you not go to West Point about the same time David Petraeus did?
5: Yeah, Jimmy. Uh, David is a uh, year behind me at West Point. I've known him for quite a few years.
0: Well, indeed, this is probably a heartbreak as far as you're concerned because of your friendship and the family there. I want to get over that. I don't want to talk about that. All the uh, network programs can deal with that. I want to ask you, though, uh, the CIA, just brief us as we are thinking about the CIA, what part do they play in the security operation, the national security operation for the United States?
5: they conduct uh, counter-intelligence operations around the world and gather information about uh, leadership that's uh, critical to our national security interest, and so you know, it's it's something that no one else does. Uh, they do clandestine work uh, that uh, you know we in the Defense Department only uh, use as consumers. So we don't uh, aren't allowed to do that sort of thing. So it's it's an interesting part of the the, the maze of uh, intelligence work that's done by the government.
0: I know that David Petraeus went to Capitol Hill on Friday morning to answer some question from uh, some of the Congress people up there. You uh, probably have maybe not heard all of that information, but uh, he basically said that from the outset, CIA knew that the Benghazi situation was more than a spontaneous eruption. Instead, it was a planned attack. Has that uh, kind of uh, settled in as exactly what everybody should know did take place there in the Washington, D.C. area, Pentagon, and all the intelligence-gathering organizations?
5: Well, there's no question that uh, the agency was in Benghazi for the explicit purpose of tracking down Man, portable air defense weapons, and also the variety of al-Qaeda and Islamist radical groups that were operating out of there. Keep in mind, Jimmy, that a lot of the people that came from Libya into the Iraq and Afghan wars have come out of Benghazi. So it's always been a hotbed of problems. And so we were there to track that down, and it should not be a surprise that Uh, Some of the activities we were involved in provoked uh, revenge, especially from the Ansar al-Sharia al-Qaeda-linked group that allegedly was involved in the attack on the consulate and later uh, the, the next morning on our annex, the CIA annex.
0: Well, and then why in the world would the Obama administration send out their spokesperson, i.e. the ambassador to the united nations mrs rice why would they send her out to tell a story that seemingly contradicted all the intelligence gathering information
5: yeah it would it is a bit puzzling that uh... Immediately following uh, that attack that she ran to the microphones and said something that was entirely uh, inaccurate in terms of uh, what provoked the attack and that it was attacked indeed, um, I can only conclude that either she got bad information or uh, there was a an explicit effort to deceive the American public
0: with that deception somewhere along the a chain of command wherever it was nobody knows at this point at least um it, did that put our country in any type of uh, jeopardy as it relates to its national security
5: well, your national security is a complex uh series of things. I am concerned that it certainly sends the wrong message that uh, senior leaders in our government are out of touch with what's happening on the ground in some volatile regions like Benghazi, uh, Libya. And so if the UN ambassador wasn't briefed, uh, there was a serious problem. She gets some of the same material that the president of the United States gets, and she has uh, considerable access to the agency. So I don't understand why she wouldn't know uh, as well as, you know, the Secretary of Defense or Secretary of State about what's happening in a very volatile region you know, just hours before she spoke.
0: Why in the world, in fact, did they select her to go out to be the spokesperson on all of the news shows that Sunday instead of maybe Secretary of State, Secretary of Defense, the CIA director, somebody else that would be much better on in the know instead of a diplomat?
5: Well, she should have been in the know, just like the others. Uh, the choice is often made by uh, the media department in the White House. They decide who is going to represent the administration's voice on a particular morning. Given that, uh, of course, Libya was known as a President Obama victory of sorts, because we led from behind and were effective at uh, toppling you know, Gaddafi months prior that, you know, perhaps uh, it was her venue uh, on an issue of some significance that she would be an appropriate spokesperson, but evidently uh, she was fed some bad information or They purposely wanted to spin the story in a way that uh, suited the election, pre-election period for
0: the president. Bob, I do not again, as I mentioned early on, want to get in the affair that uh, did take place between General Petraeus and uh, his biographer. But may I ask you, since he admitted that he had had an extramarital affair himself publicly... Uh, did that put in harm's way the United States? Did that jeopardize our national security at all?
5: Well, any time a senior official who has great access like he does, and uh, they, it makes him vulnerable to being blackmailed. And when you do a security investigation, you're trying to ascertain whether or not this individual has any uh, personal behaviors or addictions or like vulnerabilities that would uh, cause him or her to jeopardize uh, information in exchange for something, you know, whether it's sex or money or, or you know, keeping quiet about a particular situation. So, yes, uh, it is a vulnerability. Dave knew that, uh, and he also knew as a leader, because that's what he promoted himself as a, uh, the consequent, you know, military leader that uh, he had to step down. Otherwise, he wouldn't have any credibility there at the agency.
0: Yeah, it's a very, very sad story. One final question for you, Bob. You, just a few moments ago, talked about the fact that uh, this is looking bad across the world. What are other world leaders thinking about this, and what impact will it have on geopolitical activities?
5: Well, it makes the administration look weak. Uh, it makes the administration look as if they do not understand, uh, you know, their own personnel. And, of course, in a time of transition, because most of the Secretary of Defense, Secretary of State, and now the CIA, uh, probably Mr. Donlin, the uh, National Security Advisor, the President, and others will transition. And so I would say we're more vulnerable uh... we're not focused uh... and you know people like uh, vladimir putin who of course has already invited the president to visit moscow they understand that uh... uh mr obama's team is not ready to do uh... some of the things that are necessary uh, for you know their next administration, it's going to take them months to to put that uh, thinking together and then to pursue whatever agenda he happens to pursue. Uh, unfortunately, uh, up to now, uh, and I'm a major critic. Uh, he's done a very poor job, in my estimation.
0: Colonel Bob McGinnis. He looks with us at this situation unfolding uh, as it relates to Benghazi and also the resignation of David Betrays from the CIA. Some very interesting thoughts that you brought to mind for us to think about, Bob. Thank you so much. Appreciate it. We'll talk again soon. Thank you, Jimmy. Very interesting conversation with Colonel Bob McGinnis. He was on his cell phone right outside the Pentagon, and he gave us information we need to know about what is happening as it relates uh, to Benghazi Gate, which is unfolding moment by moment in the Washington, D.C. area. Well, here's another important report that you need to listen to, eavesdrop of my conversation with Dr. Rob Congdon as we move ahead here on Prophecy Today. Uh, Dr. Congdon looks at that area of the world, the region of Europe, and of course the European Union, the major political power there. Because this region continually is doing things to set the stage for Bible prophecy to be fulfilled. And as I ask Rob some questions this day, we're going to find out that is exactly the case. Rob, before we get into the European Union and all that is happening there, uh, what's the attitude of the European Union on this military operation in the Gaza Strip led by the Israeli Defense Force? Are they reacting at all yet?
6: They're reacting. uh, The problem is they're right in the middle now. They're in between the Arab states and Israel. They have alliances to both. They have dependencies on both. And so the best answer is they're right in the middle trying to figure out how to walk a line and solve that conflict of interest, so to speak, and help Israel, but at the same time not alienate the Arabs.
0: Well, I understand that this is a tough situation as far as any particular world leader has to make uh, with what is happening, unfolding there in the Gaza Strip. But the Israelis continue to say they must defend the citizens of Israel. And when you continue to have a barrage of rockets fired across into Israel proper, somebody has to shut it down. The Israeli Defense Force says they're going to do it this time. Uh, Speaking of military activities, you sent along to me a very interesting report coming out of Europe. There are now five European Union states who are calling for a new military structure. Now, this is developing faster than maybe you and I even thought it was going to.
6: Absolutely. If you recall, though, just about three weeks ago, we not only talked about it, said that it had to be formed soon. Uh, to fit their agenda and this is just exactly what's happening. I I expected to see it moving even quicker. They realize that they can't count on the US anymore and NATO will be weakened obviously without the US so and the US isn't leaving but they just aren't participating as they were. So they've recognized the need and as you and I both have known, if you're going to have an empire you've got to have military strength to back up your decisions. And that's the point that they rapidly are concluding interestingly the five countries supporting the military idea have been historically always in an empire have always been a military part of that empire so i think what we're seeing is just an ongoing history of europe in terms of how to think of as an empire
0: Well, Rob, there are uh, indeed 27 members of uh, the European Union member states there in that political organization. We've only got five now really serious about developing this military structure. Are they going to bring all the other 22 along with them, or do they have to in order to set up something?
6: Well, they have to on paper and formally, you know, to save face. They all have to be part of it. But we have to realize whether it's, it's really a de facto situation. We have two levels of countries in the European Union. The key countries that are really leading the European Union, uh, I, I can't stress this enough, have been historically those geographical areas, powerful entities within the ancient Roman Empire. So we expect that to carry through today, and that's exactly what's happening. Uh, Germany is a major power economically and influentially, so you can see that it is key countries that are really directing the EU as to its future path.
0: Bob, I also appreciate you keeping a focus on that part of the world. You're there some part of the year. You're here in the United States or someplace else in the world traveling and speaking and teaching Bible prophecy. But again, you sent me an article about the new euro notes. Uh, that are going to have displayed the tragic princess. Now talk to me about what does this all mean?
6: Okay, the tragic princess is what is called Europa. It is the story of an ancient myth, if you will, of Zeus the god seeing a beautiful young lady. He turns himself into a bull or beast. He charges, takes her away, and through their uh, coming together they have a child that is born miraculously. And this is the ancient story that has begun way back in Babel, carried through today, and it really represents a woman on the beast. And biblically, anybody who's studied prophecy, that just lights a light bulb. EU is now going to have this image of a woman on a beast on every euro note or bill that they're going to be using starting next year. They'll start with the five, uh, five euro. So every time you go and pay something with cash, you're going to be reminded of the woman on the beast in the European Union.
0: Now that you're saying dates back to Babylon. I think that would be Genesis chapter 11 uh, when the mother-son cult was established. Is that what you're referring to, Semiramis and Tammuz?
6: That's what I'm referring to, and all through history it's carried right on through. We know the names of Venus, Diana, and a modern name is Europa, and outside of the key office building of the european union is the woman on the beast statue they use this symbology throughout the eu because it's of course where the name europe came from but it also pictures beautifully this woman riding a beast which again biblically we all know goes back to the book of revelation
0: wow that's uh, chapter 17 of the book of revelation and this is a part of this documentary that uh, we are developing. Rob is going to be a part of that. Uh, Rob, make note that we want to cover this particular story when uh, we do uh, do some videotaping of you on for this documentary. Well, let me talk to you about uh, the Mediterranean Union. There's word coming that uh, the Mediterranean Union, which was established under the leadership of uh, President Sarkozy when he was president of France, I think it's headquartered in Barcelona, Spain, and the European Union Parliament are getting together. This is another indicator of we're moving quickly uh, towards what Bible prophecy calls for.
6: Uh, Absolutely. We can't ignore uh, that it seems to parallel what we would expect after reading our scriptures. The Mediterranean Union covers those nations of North Africa and around, through up through Israel to Syria. That would been part of the ancient Roman Empire. This union has been struggling the last several years to really get going. The EU has started to give, put new life into it, if you will. and what most people don't realize is, yes, it's called the European Mediterranean Union, but in reality, it is headquartered in Brussels. It is financed by the European Union, and they share uh, employees for both unions, so all purposes, it is a sort of backdoor entry to bringing in quite a number of more nations into the EU, and when you look at it on a map, it matches the Roman Empire of AD 117 at its peak. So land area-wise, we're talking between the two unions, a reformation of the geographic area of the ancient Roman Empire.
0: Well, why is the European Union Parliament getting involved? They're not the leaders necessarily they're the legislative branch but why are they getting involved
6: well they represent the people and and this is part of the european union's goal and the reason they have a parliament it's to make the people of europe uh... feel like they're part of what is happening part of the trend of where it's moving the reality is the parliament is a place to talk about to gain publicity and to introduce uh... public policies But the real power always lies in the Commission, and they are behind this idea, too. So uh, it it really, you can't escape the fact that the Mediterranean Union is in reality a branch of the EU, albeit not legally, but in actual practice.
0: Wow, and Rob just said a moment ago, when they join together, it will be the original... Boundaries of the European Union, uh, excuse me, of the Roman Empire when they were at their peak. Rob, thank you so very much. Appreciate the opportunity to chat with you. You've given us some great information.
6: Always great to be with you. Lord bless.
0: We're going to take a break, and when we come back, I've got a special interview with Rabbi Yoel Karen about the 25th anniversary of the Temple Institute. That's all ahead right here on Prophecy Today. Hi, everybody, Jimmy DeYoung. Welcome back to Prophecy Today. I want you to stay tuned because in just a moment I am going to be talking with Rabbi Yoel Karen, The Temple Institute, those people who are preparing to build the next temple, are celebrating their 25th anniversary. I've been covering this story now for 25 years. I want you to hear what the rabbi has to say of what this important task has moved to in relationship to being totally prepared for the building of that temple on the Temple Mount in Jerusalem. Very interesting conversation. Don't dare move this dial because, indeed, you need to have this information to understand the times in which we're living. Here's our poll question for today. Go to our website, prophecytoday.com. On the left-hand column, scroll down, and you'll see the poll question. Here it is. As the Israeli Defense Force moves into the Gaza Strip with a military operation to rid that Palestinian area of terrorism, could this be what's described in Bible prophecy for the end times as referred to in Malachi chapter 1? Ezekiel chapter 35, and the little book of Obadiah, the resolution uh, to the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. Go to our website, answer that poll question, and there's so much more for you at the website, our Prophecy Today radio network, so you can listen to all of our broadcasts, any of the interviews that we've had on the broadcast today, you'll be able to listen to them as well. Again, that address, prophecytoday.com. Let me now bring to these microphones a good friend, a broadcast partner with us here on Prophecy Today, and a man very knowledgeable on the preparations to rebuild the next temple in the city of Jerusalem. I'm talking, of course, about Rabbi Yoel Karen. And Rabbi, I wanted to have you on today because we're in that time period when uh, the Temple Institute is celebrating their 25th anniversary. Now, they've been around a long time. We know that. You and I know exactly what they have been doing. I want our listeners to Prophecy Today, those eavesdropping on our conversation, to be able to understand what is happening. So if you will, first of all, since you know all the players involved and they are so busy in this uh, 25th anniversary, would you just uh, relate to us what was the purpose? How did the Temple Institute come together? Talk to me a bit about their history.
7: Well, and thank you for having me. The, um, the Of course, what happened was you had a, a young... <laughs> Uh, rabbi uh... he was a former paratrooper nineteen sixty-seven He was one of the paratroopers that actually helped capture the temple mount and take it back in nineteen sixty-seven by the name of rabbi israel ariel and and this entire thing it was, was sort of his brainchild and i'm sure you know there were circles of people that had people that had been exposed to ralph kahana and uh, rabbi rabbi mayor kahana and and his ideology and his you know taking the bible seriously anyone who who had been exposed to his, his thought and everything, you know you, when you take the Bible seriously you have to take the idea of a temple seriously. And it had sort of just been pushed off to some you know imaginary um, something that we paid lip service but nobody really took seriously. And so Rabbi Ariel went from making the transition from theory and, and lip service into reality. and then that was his whole idea behind establishing the Temple Institute.
0: You know, I have a connection with all of this going back to the 80s when I was actually the vice president of a broadcast company in New York City, which did... About six hours every every evening of Orthodox Jewish programming. On the programs that we had, one of those was done by Rabbi Mira Kahana. So I had a relationship when they would want a in resident or a local crazy rabbi and a crazy Christian. They would call on Rabbi Kahana <laughs> and myself for some of the local television programs or radio programs, Barry Farber and all of those guys that were on them. And uh, he was on our station, and one day he was seated in my office, and I was talking to him, and I said, "Uh, Rabbi, what is your real concern? He said, my real concern is my desire to rebuild the next temple. That's the very first time I heard anybody talking about that. Of course, we know with his assassination in New York City, which was just a, a heartbreaking event for me personally. In fact, I got out and walked the streets for about two hours just thinking and praying I just, uh, really, I loved the guy. He was uh, such a unique type of an individual. Uh, But I know his brother, Nachman Kahana, was a teacher. The rabbi, Mer Kahana, was somewhat of the rebel rouser, the the motivator, the guy that got everybody excited about it. Nachman Kahana was more of a student and a teacher, and I know that uh, both Chaim Richman and Israel Ariel... Or in some of his classes, and and this came out, and they started studying the prophetic word of God in the Old Testament. Did they not to come about this operation?
7: Absolutely, absolutely. The you know the 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 standard line that you're going to get from from the establishment is you know it's not time yet. God will let us know when it's time. The Messiah will come, and then we'll know it's time. The the prophet will come and tell us, and we'll know it's time. But the problem is is, is that. Uh, Not the problem, the solution is that a prophet already came and told us. And in the beginning of the book of Haggai, one of the first things he says is, this people says the time has not come to build the house of the Lord. Yet apparently, a basic paraphrasing, he says, but apparently it's time for you to build nice houses for yourselves and let mine lay in ruins. And, And it's a terrible thing. And the commentaries on that prophecy say, That it was worse on that generation because a prophet had to come and tell them. He had to come and tell them what common sense should have been telling them already. Yeah. (laughs) And so, so yes, this, this all is coming from the Word of God. It's all coming from the prophets and and from the sages who interpreted those prophecies and wrote the commentaries that we we hold on those, the most the oldest commentaries that we have on those prophecies.
0: You know, I'm somewhat, as you are, I'm somewhat of a student of the history of the preparations to build the temple. And as I trace back over 2,000 years back to the destruction of that second temple in 70 AD under the Roman Empire, General Titus doing the actual destruction with his soldiers there in Jerusalem, I find out that this probably, this period of time, these 25 years of the Temple Institute in Jerusalem, is probably the most serious effort of the Jews. Now, they've had other efforts in the past, but this is the most serious effort of the Jewish people to prepare to build this temple. Would you probably agree with that or not?
7: Absolutely. The most, the most serious probably since the time of, of Bar Kokhba, you know, the, the second great Jewish revolt against, uh, against Rome. They were trying to make serious preparations to, to rebuild the temple, but it just wasn't to be, and it wasn't the right timing. So yeah, probably it's probably the most serious efforts in the last, you know, 1700, 1800 years.
0: What do you say, if somebody asks you, what are they doing? I mean, you know, they're talking about it, but are they putting uh, their, as they say in Christianity, prayers, uh, feats on their prayers, and actually doing something? What is the Temple Institute doing?
7: The, the working assumption that, that the Temple Institute works under is there are things that we can do to, can't do today. We can't walk up and dismantle the Dome of the Rock and start constructing a temple. Unfortunately, we can't be doing that right now but there are things that we can be doing and their focus is primarily on the things that we can do. Uh Rob Richmond leads daily groups up to the Temple Mount to educate the public. Tourist groups from outside the country, Jewish, Christian groups, they they go up with he goes up just about every day, every day that the police allow uh visitors to to go up. And then they, they the Temple Institute has a a a rabbinic uh study hall where they have full-time students that are sitting and learning and doing research on every aspect of the temple every aspect not only of the vessels and the priests, everything to do with the service and and i can tell you you know from being involved in this for over ten years myself at a very intense level the, re- the research is just it's it's very tiring and it's very very involved to, to sit and try to you're trying to when you have descriptions from two thousand years ago of a color that something is you have to understand that their concept when they say blue or green this includes you know a whole range of colors you have to understand what the ancients meant when they used certain words for colors it's not necessarily identical to the colors that we have today so everything is very involved very meticulous research certain types of precious stones are described you have to start doing the, the the homework and tracing everything back, you know, is something that's called a sapphire today. Was it called a sapphire two thousand years ago, or was something else called a sapphire back then? And most of this, you know, there's history leaves nice trails of breadcrumbs for us to follow, and it can be researched out. I think just the uh, the, the breastplate of the high priest, uh, there was ten years of research involved in that before they were ready to put it together. So there's there's a lot a lot going on things that seem very simple when you read them in the Bible. One of the things that we have to consider is that when we open up our Bibles and we're just giving the Bible a casual read to get a sense and an understanding of what it says, when we see that there was a seven-branched candelabra in the temple and God tells them to build this thing this high and this wide and of this many talents of pure gold, you read it, you understand it, you say, fine, and you move on. But now, stop and say to yourself, well, let's, let's take that out of our, our Bible study, take it out of that world and move it into the real world. Now I want to build this thing. How do I do it? And then you start to realize, when you get down to the drawing board and you have engineers working on the thing, and you start to realize, well, wait a minute, if it really is this wide and it's this tall and it's pure gold, it would seem that the branches, because they're so wide and they're so heavy and the gold is so soft, they'll collapse under their own weight. All sorts of problems start to come up that we have to find solutions for, and we have to. It's 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 really it's one thing to read it in the Bible; it's another thing. It's a whole different thing. You're in a whole new world when you talk about putting these things into practice, like the the thread of blue that goes on the high priest's crown and that we're all commanded to wear. This was an animal that no one knew what it was for many, many centuries. No one even knew what this animal was, and it took a lot of research. And at first they couldn't figure out how to get blue dye out of it. The whole thing came about because one of the scientists took the jar of the solution, went to go get coffee, and put the stuff in a window in the sunlight, and the sunlight broke off two types of atoms on this stuff, mm. and it gave them the blue dye. And then they realized that that's what they had to do was put it in the sun. So it's, <laughs> these are things that have just come to us over the last 25 years or so.
0: Wow. Isn't that a wonderful story? All the implements are prepared. You have the harps uh, that they will be playing when the temple is standing there on the Temple Mount in Jerusalem. The priestly garments, I talked with Rabbi Nachman Kahani. He said his priestly garment hanging in his closet, ready for him to put on and report for duty on the Temple Mount. How close are they to having everything ready?
7: You know, I think if, God willing, if we were able to go up and set up the divine service today we have pretty much everything we need to do it for certain types of offerings and we're still missing the ashes of the red heifer and that's that's a huge problem that we just can't get around we have to either find the old ashes and find some way to prove that that's what they are or god has to give us a new red heifer because everyone today every jew on earth is defiled with contact with the dead and the only way to remove that is with the ashes of the red heifer and we cannot bring the most of the sacrifices in that state of impurity. There are certain sacrifices like the passover offering that we're told that if the majority of the priests, the majority of the vessels and the majority of the people are in a state of impurity, we cannot put those sacrifices off. We're supposed to do them even in a state of impurity. We're supposed to bring them anyway because the passover offering is so important. So there are a few different uh, services. Like I said passover offering it being one of them that we could bring right now. There's nothing to stop it. There's nothing impeding it. We have the priests, they have the garments, we have the gold vessels, the silver vessels. We know how to put an altar together. The there there's a small altar put together uh in in the temple institute right now from what I understand. They have plans on of building an even larger um, display model for for people to see an actual uh, setup, uh, you know, made in stone, of unhewn stones, and so there's, there's really nothing to stop us right now.
0: Nothing to stop the Jewish people from building that temple on the Temple Mount in Jerusalem. What an awesome thought. When you know anything about Bible prophecy, you have to know that will be the scenario in the times of the end, according to the ancient Jewish prophets. Rabbi Yoel Karen has been the one I've had the conversation with. If you've eavesdropped on this conversation, you should be excited as well and uh, looking forward to how Bible prophecy is going to be fulfilled. Rabbi Karen, thank you so very much for this update. Appreciate all the times we can spend together with you, and I'm sure we'll have a conversation down the road real soon. God bless. God bless. Wow, what an interesting conversation with Rabbi Yoel Karen. If you could re listen to that, go to our website, ProphecyToday.com, P-T-R-N, Prophecy Today Radio Network. Call a friend, tell them. They need to hear this conversation. We're going to take a break. When we come back, I'll take a look at the book right here on Prophecy Today.
2: Christians in the Last Days. To order your copy of Jimmy D. Young's Revelation, a chronology, call us toll-free at 877-674-3298 or visit our website at prophecytoday.com.
0: It's time right now here on Prophecy Today for us to take a look at the book. On Prophecy Today weekend, we had some very important news that we needed to cover with our broadcast partners. We talked with Ken Timmerman in Washington, D.C. We looked at the Benghazi Gate, as they are referring to it, a move, a major move to cover up Something that seemingly was trying to manipulate activities in the elections or whatever. Much, much more information to come out on that. But when you think about that, you've got to remember the Arab Spring has played a key role in the Middle East for the last year and a half. And when you think about Benghazi, which is in Libya, the radical elements, I, and I understand, I understand that Colonel Qaddafi was a bad, bad, wicked man. But what has replaced him, that element coming to power now in Libya, is very radical. Let me just think about this with you. Ezekiel chapter 38 does mention Libya in that alignment of nations that will come against the Jewish state of Israel in the last days. Daniel 11 does the exact same thing. That's verses 40 to 43, and you'll see Libya mentioned there. So when you look at Benghazi, you look at the situation in Libya, you have to understand this is a stage-setting process there in that part of the region of the Middle East. We talked to Dr. Rob Congdon. He reports, for us on the European Union and what's happening there. And we talked about a military force that would be put in place in the European Union. The European Union doesn't like its relationship with NATO. They realize the United States is playing the key role there. They want their own military operation. And that's a step towards the revived Roman Empire because when you revive a major empire, a Gentile world power, of the past. They must have a military operation, their own military operation, not uh, under some type of remote control from another nation of the world. And of course, we also talked about the European Union and the Mediterranean Union coming together. They have put that in high gear now for the very near future when you will gel these two different unions, 27 member states in the European Union. You have 17 member states in the Mediterranean Union, 44 states. And remember, uh, Rob brought to our attention, when that's in place, it'll be the actual borders of the Roman Empire at the time of the height of their power. But that, again, is a step to the revival of the Roman Empire. Daniel chapter 7, verse 7 talks about the ten horns. Daniel chapter 2 talks about the ten toes of iron and clay. In Daniel 7, verses 23 and 24, that's talking about the revival of the Roman Empire, who will come to power at the time of the end. When we talk with Itamar Marcus, he heads up Palestinian Media Watch. We talked with Itamar about the 24th anniversary of Yasser Arafat declaring independence for the Palestinian people. It's a declaration of independence that took place back in 1988. This marked the beginning of a process where the Palestinian people wanted to have their own Palestinian state. They say that the Israelis took their Palestinian state away. Truth be known, there has never been a Palestinian state. It's a part of the whole process for the Palestinian people to come back to power. The prophet Malachi in chapter 1 said, as he was relating to the Edomites, those would be the Palestinian people of today. What would happen is the Edomites or the Palestinians would return. They would rebuild. They would have borders. And the text says in Malachi chapter 1, the Lord would call these borders borders of wickedness. And he would have indignation against these people forever. The Palestinian people, you can trace from Esau. 25th chapter of the book of Genesis, when he was first born a twin to Jacob, all the way to today, and we get that information. I'll look at that in just a few moments. Colonel Bob McGinnis in Washington talked with us about the Benghazi situation, the terrorist attack that was underway in Benghazi, the fact that General Petraeus said that and knew it early on, and it looks like the Obama administration tried to manipulate that for what purpose, we're not absolutely sure. Talk with Yoel Karen What an interesting conversation conversation. conversation that was. The 25th anniversary of the Temple Institute. These people have been preparing to build the Temple Institute in the—excuse me, the Temple— on the Temple Mount in the city of Jerusalem. All preparations have been made. And I want you to know that all these conversations, especially the one with you all, Karen, they're all on our website, prophecytoday.com, at PTRN, Prophecy Today Radio Network. That's radio when you want it, at your convenience. But you know our main report was on the Gaza military operation by the Israeli Defense Force. That is key. This is really the epitome of the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. It started 4,000 years ago, Genesis chapter 25. Jacob and Esau in the mother's womb started to struggle together. Uh, It it was very interesting. Esau was sent to Mount Seir, which is the lower third of modern-day Jordan. Jacob was given Israel. This continues the conflict. Esau had a son, a grandson named Amalek. He became the leader of the Amalekites. When you look at the book of Exodus chapter 17, you see the Amalekites try to wipe out the Israelites as they're headed towards the promised land. That was at a place called Rephidim. First Samuel chapter 15 talks about how God told Samuel the prophet to tell the first king of Israel King Saul to kill all the Amalekites, and he did not follow through. In fact, a recent statement by an Israeli general said the problem in the Middle East, and especially the Israeli Palestinian conflict, is because King Saul wasn't obedient. He allowed Agag, who was the king of the Amalekites, to stay alive. Ultimately, Samuel chopped him up in little pieces. You look at the book of Esther, Haman had a desire to wipe out the Jewish people. He moved ahead to do that. By the way, chapter 3, verse 1 says Haman was the son of Abadatha, a Agagite. And may I tell you this? Haman had a great great grandson. His name was Herod the Great. You understand what I've just said to you? From Esau to Amalek to Agag to Haman and then to Herod the Great. All of these people. Edomites trying to destroy the Jewish people. Well, again, uh, Malachi one says that they will return and try to rebuild. Ezekiel chapter thirty five says judgment will come upon these people, the Palestinian people, for killing the Jews and trying to take their land. The book of Obadiah brings a conclusion to this. When Jesus Christ returns, he will reward the Jewish people, give them the possessions he's promised them, and he will destroy the Palestinian people. This is a conflict like never before in all of history. It's talked about in the Bible. It's going to happen, and this conflict will only be resolved with the return of Jesus Christ. But Let me remind you, the next event on God's calendar of activities is the rapture of the church, the rapture. And that's when Jesus shouts, the archangel shouts, the trump of God sounds, and we're caught up to be with him in the air. And everything we've said on this broadcast is evidence to me, and it should be to you, that the rapture can happen at any moment. And having made that statement, there's nothing left for me to say, except let's keep looking up until. Thank
2: you so much for joining us today. This is Jay Johnson inviting you to join us again next week for more of Prophecy Today. Thank you.